0: Welcome POSNA members and guests to the continued virtual coverage of the POSNA annual meeting from the JPO podcast team. This is Craig Lauer from the University of North Carolina. And tonight we're bringing you the 2020 Airbell Elite Young Members Forum podcast edition. This has always been a favorite event of mine at Live POSNA so I'm thrilled to have it continue in this manner. Thanks to the dedication of your POSNA program chairs and specifically the Young Member Forum chair for 2020, Megan Johnson from Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So if you've registered for the meeting, you will have access to the pre-recorded presentations by our expert panelists through the virtual platform, and I encourage you to watch them and to hear their pearls about training and early practice. However, the panel is where the gloves come off, and we get to hear a variety of opinions about the questions that matter to you, our young members. So with that, I will turn it over to Megan to introduce our panelists and give an overview of today's episode.
1: Thanks, Craig. So uh, first of all, I just want to say a huge thank you to our panelists for not only preparing really excellent talks for the 2020 Arabella Elite Memorial Young Member Forum, but also for taking extra time out of their busy schedules and um, endless Zoom meetings to participate in this podcast. Um, I hope that everyone who's listening will um, check out the on-demand content for the uh, virtual Young Members Forum this year. The talks that our panelists have put together are really wonderful, and there's a lot of great uh, words of wisdom there to learn from. Um, so before we begin with some questions for each of them, I just wanted to give a short introduction to who we have with us today. Um, first, we have Dave Skaggs from CHLA, where he's chief of pediatric spine surgery, and his talk is on getting to yes, negotiation with your practice and administration. Next, we have um, Jack Flynn with us from CHOP, where he is chief of orthopedics. He's also been a past president of POSNA, and his talk is on lessons learned, mistakes from his first 10 years in practice. Um, We have Michelle Caird uh, from the University of Michigan where she is interim chair um, of orthopedics. She's also the current treasurer of POSNA and her talk is on mentors, networking and POSNA. We also have Steve Albanese here from SUNY Upstate in uh, Syracuse, New York, um, and he's chair and residency program director for the Department of Orthopedics. And his talk is on um, developing a career action plan, uh, academic and professional advancement. And he's also the current POSNA president. Um, We have Amy McIntosh here with us as well. She's from uh, Texas Scottish Rite in Dallas, and she's a staff pediatric orthopedic surgeon there. Her talk is on success at work and home, how to be a great mom, dad, and surgeon. We also are really lucky to have with us uh, Margaret Chabon Murphy-Zane, who is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at uh, Colorado Children's Hospital, and she was a really close friend with Arabella Leet, for whom this forum is dedicated to and with that, um, I'd like to ask her to say a few words about Arabella, and I really encourage everyone to um, go ahead and uh, listen to her beautiful talk about her life and um, her contributions to POSNA on the virtual platform. Thanks, Siobhan. Thanks, I'm very happy to be able to do this with you all today.
2: Um, Arabella Lee was born and raised in Boston as a child. She was treated at Boston Children's for limb deficiency, which lent her a special bond with her young patients in later years. Educated at Harvard College and Columbia Med School, Arabella trained in orthopedics at University of Minnesota, Gillette, and did her Pease Ortho Fellowship at DuPont. She took her first job at DC Children's, established a lab at the NIH, and moved to Hopkins for many years where she headed up their Kennedy Krieger Institute. In 2012, she took the chief of staff post at Shriners Hospital in Honolulu. Her many accomplishments in POSNA include the St. Child's Young Investigator Award, the EPOS Traveling Fellowship, and in 2007, she won the Posna Best Basic Science Paper Award for her work in Osteogenesis and Perfecta. She published 30 papers, 16 in JPO. Sadly, in 2013, at the age of 48, Arabella passed away suddenly of a brain hemorrhage, survived by her husband, Steve Nyman, and their young son, Kenneth. We all miss her kindness, and particularly her dry sense of humor the Young Member Forum honors her for her dedication to her patients, to science, to her colleagues, and to POSNA. Thanks for having us here today.
1: Thank you. So the way that we're um, going to structure this is that I just have some questions and I'm just I'm going to direct towards a panelist, but feel free to chime in if you um, have something that you want to add. Um, And at the end I have a little bit of a lightning round with some rapid fire questions that I hope everybody can just kind of chime in and answer. The first question I have is for Steve and it is from actually from Celestine Chi uh, who is a chief resident at the University of Minnesota currently and she submitted this question. The question is um, current statistics are concerning that half of new orthopedic graduates leave their first job within the um, first five years. One survey states that the most common reason is for financial reasons or because the practice was not as advertised. Knowing that, what are some useful questions to ask potential employers to minimize these chances, and what should we know about a practice so that we decrease our risk of having to change jobs within the first five years?
3: I think that's a uh, very difficult question to answer and that job changing has gone on for, for a long time. And I think it's, when you go and interview at a job, it's really hard to assess uh, what their need actually is. And I, and, and to me uh, th- that's one of the key questions when you get there to try to analyze what they are looking for, what, what they need. Is there really, is there really a demand for you there? Are you going to be uh, in a position to uh uh, succeed? Is it going to be a struggle to build a practice? Is the volume there uh, enough to uh, to allow you to build the practice? I think, of course, uh, you have to get into some of the uh, contractual things. Sometimes we go into these arrangements with, you know, wishful thinking and people tell you, well, that's, that's not going to be a problem and, and don't worry about that. And so I think that it's really important to, to try to understand the actual contract Because most of the time, or when I review these uh, contracts for my residents, a lot of them will bring them into me. You know, they usually have uh, like a two-year guarantee and uh, things go pretty well during that that, uh, first period, but you really have to try to understand what is going to happen after that. Now, I think one of the things you have to face is in terms of reality of these things, they're not always going to work out. So I think an important characteristic uh, of a contract, I know it's a little bit of a negative uh, uh, approach, but I I think it's important to understand how you get out of a contract. For example, if you're going back to a region that's really, really desirable for you and they have a strict uh, no-compete arrangement, I think it's important to understand that. And I know we'll, we'll hear arguments that you... Uh, that they're hard to enforce, et cetera, but you don't really want to get into a a legal battle right away.
1: Do you, um, do you think it's important to have somebody look at your contract? Like a, there's a lot of lawyers around who offer this service now for a fee. Um, Is that something they think is absolutely necessary? Or do you think that's uh, skip that and save your money?
3: uh um, i probably have a, a bias in this i don't but uh, that's probably because i look at a lot of contracts i don't think that's absolutely necessary They're, most of them are pretty straightforward and if you get into a re, uh, i think it's you start off on the wrong foot if you get into a really antagonistic uh, negotiation uh with uh, with the person i think it'll be interesting to hear i think dave's uh, presentation was about the terms uh and he might be able to add to that. But I, I I find most of them pretty straightforward and understandable. So I have not generally encouraged our uh, residents to get an attorney.
1: Dave, do you have any thoughts on that issue?
3: Yeah, I do. Uh, first off, I'd
0: almost think that you're not getting a job, but you are hiring a boss, So I think the most important thing is the boss you hire. And if you have somebody that really wants you to succeed, that's going to maximize your chances of success. And Steve, I'm so glad to hear you say that, um, that I personally don't also recommend lawyers looking over contracts. I've never seen that help, and I have seen it cause antagonistic situations. The contract is the contract for a major university or hospital. The lawyer is not going to change it. If you want something outside of the contract, an
4: email from the chair to you could be legally binding.
0: I see Jack Flynn has his hand up.
4: I had something real quick. I I think it's important for young people who are picking a job, or maybe in their first couple of years a job, to not consider leaving a job a sign of failure. Um, In this world we're in right now, especially as pediatric orthopedics becomes a bit more specialized and people get favorite things, If you're coming out of a great fellowship, and you like pediatric orthopedics, but you in particular like hip preservation, that job may not be available the particular year you come out. So sometimes you literally need to go to a place that's going to give you, you're going to be busy, you're going to get a great start, and then you're going to have a few years to kind of look around and find out what an ideal job is to you, um, and then go from there. Um, I think that's important. And that's coming from a guy who's had one job, one secretary, one house, one wife for however long. Um, I don't think it's a failure. And I think some people grow by moving.
3: Just in terms 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 of people people. reviewing the contracts, uh, just a quick anecdote, Uh, a managing partner of a big private group once told me he had a junior person coming in that was arguing and arguing about the contract. And he said, I finally said to him, this is the contract I signed. You're not getting a better deal.
1: Yeah, I think those are all really good points, um, and I especially liked Jack's point about don't look, don't look at moving to a new job as a failure. It might be a stepping stone. Okay, we're going to switch gears, um, and I'm going to um, ask Michelle a question. It's another submission from a chief resident, Henry Ford, Alan uh, Cadado. and his question is, recognizing that POSNA is the dominant society in the life of a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, how eager should a young PD pod be to get substantially involved in other professional societies like the AOA, um, AOS, um, and other organizations. Thank you for the
5: question. I think first of all, um, I will start off with a plug for POSNA because I have found it to be such a wonderful organization. I found that orthopedics was really wonderful and I love putting people back together and putting things together and using my hands. um, But there, um, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me in orthopedics, um, but I found um, more people that, um, that, that shared my um, excitement for taking care of kids, my excitement for thinking about growth and how that dimension factored into orthopedics. Um, people who wanted to ask questions, who were very academic, but also very clinically minded as well, and and so I just felt like, oh boy, Posna is such a wonderful home, um, and and the the most um, renowned people in in pediatric orthopedics were um, approachable. Um, were kind, were encouraging right off the bat. So that was something that I felt very welcomed to. Um, so I'm, that's my plug for for Pozna um, and, and wonderful opportunities that it has given me and that I hope that we can continue to offer to our young members. And that said, there are um, also other organizations that I feel um, give um, a real uh, look at leadership and real opportunities for moving up um, i I think that really the very best things are to find places where you feel energized by the opportunities um, and you feel like you can really give something to the society and that um, that you can you you also should be able to count on getting mentors and and getting. Um, some returns for the investment of the time that you put in um, and a really good society to join is one that um, that remembers that about itself and that it, it has something to return to its members so so and I think that at some points in in my career there have been certain organizations that, were more helpful and other times where Pozna was most helpful and sometimes where you're working with the same people in a a number of different organizations on different committees and learning from them. And and again, um, uh, increasing your network, finding people that you enjoy working with and all of those great things. So I think it's a matter of how much time you have how much you feel like you can give and then and how much the society's thinking about you as well so um i i encourage it all and then at some point concentrate on on an area where you can really thrive
1: i think that makes a lot of sense to try to put your energy into stuff that you'll get a return on and that you're really interested in and you'll find fulfillment in okay uh dave i have a question for you in watching your talk you touched on not uh, being the person who's always threatening to leave your job in, in in the art of negotiation, but if you are considering leaving your current job, who should you tell and who should you talk to about it and how can you approach that conversation as a negotiation and, and do it tactfully? Yeah,
0: that's a good question. Um, so first off, you don't wanna be the person that's always threatening to leave because it is a threat. Nobody likes to be threatened and it's not gonna feel good. Um, if you're sincerely thinking of another job somewhere else, either because it's so good you can't turn it down or you have to look at it, or because there's problems with your present situation, sometimes it's good to let your chief or leader or mentor kind of quietly leak out the words so it doesn't make it look like you're threatening to leave, or rather they are fighting to retain you. Um, so if you're in a situation where you have a good mentor that wants to retain you, then it could be viewed as a positive. Like, wow, we've been so smart to hire this person who's already world famous that other people want to hire her. Let's do everything we can to retain her. So that's the optimum. I'm going to tell one quick story here that Vern Tolo told me that I love that I think we'll all remember. Back in the days of Hopkins, there was apparently a chief of ENT and a chief of plastic surgery that both wanted to do the same type of surgery and only their division could do it. And they went into the chief of surgery and said, if this doesn't go my way, I'm quitting. So the chair of surgery fired both of them. So I'd say if people are uh, threatening to leave, you may be surprised that people may let you leave. Yeah, it's a good point. It looks like Shaban wants to jump in here.
2: Yeah, I think that one, you don't want to be viewed as the person who's always kicking tires um, because people find out. And if you are getting uh, offers or you are looking at a job, immediately tell your chief, Because if they find out through other avenues, that doesn't go well either. Also, be aware of the fact that oftentimes there's an attitude that once you go, even if it's for a vertical move, so you don't want to move for a horizontal job, you want to move for a vertical job. No one blames you for that. But remember that many places will say, you're dead to me now. So when you decide you miss where you were before, sometimes it's more difficult than you would think to go back.
3: I have a couple of comments as a uh, as a department chair. Um, first, uh, kind of follow up on what d- uh, Dave was saying about threatening. I view a threat as an ultimatum and an ultimatum is not a negotiation. So when somebody gives you an ultimatum, the negotiation's over. So I don't think that's a good negotiating strategy. And if, in fact, uh, it, it, you'll just make, People dig their heels in more, and it's going going nowhere. So, really, I've kind of put the message out in our department that there's a no ultimatum rule, or else it's or else it's the uh, the end of the discussion. Um, and as far as uh, thinking about academic positions, uh, there are there are situations where you have younger faculty member, very talented person. They look at the situation in their department and see that uh, there are people ahead of them that may be going to the chief job or to Chair job, and they want to advance their career, and, and I uh, consider it somewhat flattering when you, you've uh, uh, mentored someone, taught them something, and they move on and take another job. So it's not always a it's not always a negative thing, and and often the relationship re- can remains main strong, and people come back to you and ask you for advice as they uh, take on their new role.
1: Thanks. I think that's really good advice for younger um, partners who are you know thinking about is changing a job right for me. Jack, my next question is for you. Um, You talked about um, saying no and trying to build an orthopedic no-fly zone in your practice um, to set aside time for family and other things outside of uh, doing orthopedics. Um, For the young orthopedic surgeon who's in the first um, few years of their career, how feasible do you think that, that is? I know when I started my job, I always felt this tremendous pressure that I had to leave after all my partners left. And if they asked me to do something that I had to say yes, no matter what. So how do you negotiate that as a, a early career partner?
4: It's, uh, it's uh, two different kind of questions there. Um, when you first start out, you shouldn't ever say no. You're supposed to make yourself useful. That's why they hired you. You, you should dive in and kind of take call whenever they want you to. you got to be prepared. For this. You need to tell if you have a spouse and you're coming out of fellowship, you say, You thought that was bad. Wait till you see my next couple years because the first couple years are really, really hard and everybody needs to be prepared for that. You have to say yes for a lot of reasons. They're putting out a lot of money and taking a risk on you and you need to make yourself useful and prove that worth in the first few years. Um, The other thing is in your first few years, people will start to give you jobs um, and you kind of got to keep saying yes. Uh, One of the ones that really sticks in my mind is my uh, chief at that time, John Dormans, a couple years in said, hey, can you go sit on that hospital CME committee? We really need there's no surgeons on that. Can you just go sit on that? Um, I had no idea even what CME was really kind of like I didn't know what the process was. And I went and sat on it. And after a couple years, I said, I love this. And it became like a pillar of my career was doing CME and making courses and stuff like that. And that's the lesson that you don't know necessarily what you're good at because a lot of the stuff you're asked to do in your first few years and you may really thrive at, they don't have in residency. I mean, you don't get trained in this stuff. The second point is uh, how hard you, when you leave and all that sort of thing. I do think you have to really step it up and work incredibly hard the first couple of years. I don't think you necessarily have to stay the latest or whatever, but you have to get your job done. You have to take more call. You got to take call doing Posna and on Christmas Eve and all that kind of stuff. You just kind of have to knowing that that time will pass and then the third piece to that is I think once you really get your feet on the ground and you start getting really good time management skills, especially, and you start managing your calendar far enough out, you can be a young person who still gets to those games and stuff if you're looking far enough out and put the time in other places.
1: Dave, go ahead. And
0: I think Jack makes a great point that you have to be hustling and be there to build your practice at first. At the same time, we've tried to set a corporate culture if you will, at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, that if you're not operating past 6.30 p.m., you should be home with your family. And, you know, Bob Kay and I would kind of knock on the door and go, what's the matter with you? You don't love your family? Get home. So I think that it could come down a little bit from the top that we're in this for the long run. And in the long run, we want to be happy and put time into some things outside of orthopedics.
2: This is Siobhan. I think that cycles back to the questions that you ask when you first are looking at a job. And I, we have. Um... A, a lot of women in our department. And I think that with our younger partners, I re, I am so proud at how well they've negotiated what they're going to do. We have a pretty high level of trauma, but we have a lot of people. So I think that our call schedule is very fair. And I'm gonna give a shout out to Dave because I think Dave has been, I, I've known him forever, right? We went to medical school and um, I'm gonna tell a story. So we were at PASNA one time and one of the other members who I knew very well was like, why are all these women following Dave around all the time? Like what's with the fan club? And like, because Dave actually gives them opportunity. Like, I think you're, I'm going to give you kudos because I think your leadership has been terrific in terms of making things easier for your female partners.
0: Thank you, Siobhan. And what's interesting is we have about 50% women, which as far as I know is about as high a percent women as any orthopedic practice in the country. No one's told me otherwise. And once Oh, Michelle may have more. And once you have the best women there, more of the best women want to come. And it's phenomenal that when we hire people, their sex never comes up as a reason for or against. You just take the best people, it becomes a meritocracy. And I'm so proud of that.
2: And I I think that um, on the other side of things, so everyone knows uh, my husband's chair of emergency medicine at University of Colorado, and he has actually won awards for mentorship for women, um, in his field. And one of the things that he learned, he was a very traditional, uh, men, he had a very traditional mentorship, um, relationship with his chair at Harvard for many years. They went out for cigars. They went out for dinners. They went out, you know, they spent a lot of time together. And I think that what he has done is he has gone to his, he's all of his vice chairs are women. And he has gone to them and said, I don't expect you to go out to dinner at night. I don't I want you to go home with your family. There are other times that we can do those meetings. And I think that it's, as Dave says, it's, it is a leadership thing from the top down. Of course, our trauma, um, our, we have a woman, Julia Sanders who's fantastic. Who's our head of trauma and she works all the time. But I think that it's important to make a priority for everybody to get home and not to add on all this stuff at the end of the day that, it's nice if we can play golf, it's nice if we can have cigars, I don't smoke, but it, it's nice that we can go out, but there are other times that you can make that a priority to get together socially and still have that mentorship role.
1: Thank you guys. I think um, I think those are really good words of advice. Um, Amy, you're, you're up next. I've got a question for you. Um, you uh, talked, In your um, presentation about kind of being a good parent and a good surgeon at the same time about trying to be present at home and not taking things uh, home with you at the end of the day, are there things that you do during your workday that set you up for success and being able to do this? Um, You know, how do you avoid taking the job home with you?
6: Yeah, I would say I've gotten um, better at it as I have progressed in my career. Um, I would say I wasn't very good at it my first five years, but I also waited a long time to have kids. And so I didn't even have children until I'd been in practice for three years. And it's a lot easy. This is terrible for me to say this, but I'm just going to be really honest. It's easier uh, when the, when they're really young and they're infants, <laughs> because, you know, um, they sleep a lot and, you know, they take naps. So, I actually, when they were uh, infants, I actually could get more work done at home because, you know, sometimes they would, you know, take a three-hour nap on a Saturday. So you might as well write a manuscript or something. Um, But now they're eight and 11, and they pretty much, if I'm home, like, demand my attention. And so as they have aged, I've sort of had to morph... um, how much work I do at home. So now basically I do no work at home and I really concentrated on just being present with them. But that means I've had to be a lot more efficient in my day. So what I do is I basically say, okay, I'm going to give myself 12 hours at work a day. And during that 12 hours, I'm going to get everything I need to get done. And then when I go home, I'm going to be present with my family. So Basically, I've just found ways to become more efficient in the OR, in clinic, getting things done uh, when I have admin time, like really concentrating on saying, no, I'm going to shut my door and I'm going to take two hours of this admin time to like knock this out and knock this out. Um, But I think I've gotten better at that as I've progressed in my career. And I do think it takes practice and time. And I also think being present takes practice and time, right? It's really easy to say, oh, you're home and you're being present, but you're not, you're, you know, on your phone or your computer. So I don't even want to tempt myself with that. So I just like leave that at work so that when I'm home, I just say, okay, what do you guys want to do? Let's go for a walk. Let's eat dinner. Let's talk about your day, you know, what was good and bad. And I think everybody can set, you know, those priorities for themselves and their family. And like I said, I don't know that I am the greatest mom surgeon. <laughs> I, I think that's a very difficult thing to be, but I try, I try to be, you know, as present as possible. And I'm still not always successful at it. I think
0: Actually, the art of- I support what she just said? Yeah. I think particularly with young kids, if you're in front of them and you're doing something else, they notice, they notice that they're not that important. If you're at work, you're not there. They don't even notice. I love the idea that you said, when you're home, you give them full attention. When you're not there, you're not there.
1: Yeah. I I think the art of time management is, um, it's hard when you first start out and then it's good to hear that you get better at it over time. And for good or bad, I mean, you just get faster and more efficient in the
6: OR, right? So like, I know how many cases I can do in eight hours. And so I've got it down to where like, I know if I do this, this, and this, I'll still be done by this time. That is so much harder in your first five years. You are just trying to figure it out. So like, I mean, like Jack said, your first couple of years are really hard. I think they're the hardest. I personally think so. I've been in practice for 13 years now. I think kind of years like maybe eight to 15 are a little easier because you've worked things out. But the first five to seven are really hard. I think they were for me at least. I think, can I
2: step in, and I'm really proud of you. I'm, I think that, um, not to go back to be like, quote Arabella or to put words in her mouth, but I think that she would be so proud of this current generation of women who are in at your spot in life, because those first five years, and there's been papers published about this, about burnout. And I think it is so hard, those first couple of years, and it's so important to be compassionate to yourself, and to try to work out the timing. I think it's, it's a little heartbreaking, or it's a little, I can feel it when you say, oh, well, I'm going to do like 12 hours a day at work. That's a really long day. And so, um, and so it's, it's a terrible time that first couple of years. And so when, the, when you have that time where you don't have kids later, I had kids as a resident. And it's, it, it changes things dramatically. And I think just acknowledging how that is different with different, it's changed now from where it was 20 years ago. And I think that Jack and Dave and I are this generation where things started to change. And it's super hard. So I'm glad that you've hung in there. And I think that just time management is super important. And I also agree with the point of when you're at work, do your work at work. And stay a little longer at work if that's what you need to do and focus down and not answer the phone and really try to jack's talked about carving out time in your week where this is the only thing i'm doing i'm only getting this manuscript done and i'm not answering emails i'm not doing other stuff i'm just trying to focus and sometimes that's the biggest problem thank
1: you guys um, for that advice um i have another question for dave um it's from alan Codado again um and the question's about job searches so Uh, It's a two part question. The first part is, do you ignore or embrace recruiters? Any advice on how to sift through opportunities presented by recruiting agencies? And the second part is who should make the first contact when discussing a job? Should you um, approach the institution directly or is it better to have a mentor or a program director make that phone call for you?
0: Those are tough questions and I'd welcome other people's advice on that. Um, In general, I think it's important just like a negotiation to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Uh, Chair people, people that run practices are looking for you as much as you're looking for them. And I love it when somebody contacts me years early and say, Hey, I might be doing my fellowship. I think I'm going to be looking into this or that. And you can start the recruiting and the discussion practice really early. So I'd say, if you know that you want to be in a particular location Find out who's in that location and talk to them as early as possible, and they could possibly direct you to say, hey, we're going to need a hip preservation person, or we're going to need a sports person, so you could maybe become the exact person that they need to hire. Now, in terms of recruiters, at least in academics, I'm not sure I've any, ever seen anyone hired by a recruiter. Uh, recruiters seem to hire people to private practice jobs that pay a lot and seem to turn over a lot, and people don't seem to be too happy. Yeah, I'd welcome other people's opinion on this.
3: I would just add that uh, as a department chair, and I've been a department chair for around 20 years now, I have never spoken to a recruiter. And I just, I think in particular in pediatric orthopedics, there there are jobs, you know that there are jobs out there, and I would rather deal directly with the the individual. And they add a lot of unnecessary expense.
1: Dave, I'm so glad you touched on um, people contacting you early on, because I have residents and fellows that asked me about that, you know, would it be okay to get in touch with so-and-so? And so so I'm glad you said that that's not off-putting to you and that you welcome somebody reaching out.
0: I would say one of the number one things that most bosses look for in a hire is enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, enthusiasm. They want to be there. And if you get an early phone call and early email and people keep following it up, that kind of defines enthusiasm.
1: That's, I think that's really good advice. Um, I have a combo question for um, Jack and Steve, an anonymous submission from somebody, and the question is about dual fellowship training and where the field of pediatric orthopedics is heading in that regard, especially in the area of sports, spine, and, and hand, and also in the context of wanting to pursue a career in academic medicine.
3: Jack, Jack you can go first. Okay. Okay.
4: Um, I think there's a, a couple different things. Um, there is a credentialing piece for hand in sports. It's a little different. And sometimes to get into that world, um, you kind of need to do an official adult sports fellowship. For instance, I think some of the one of the societies kind of requires that. And there's there's those kind of pieces. I think these days um, people are sub specializing. Um, But I think pretty much everything other than hand and maybe tumor, if you go to the right fellowship that has a lot of what you want, you certainly can come out with the clinical skills ready to go out into practice and do a great job. Um, I think people sometimes want to add that as a credential to do a hip preservation year or to do a hand, uh, well, mostly sports year, really. I think hand is kind of separate. Uh, There's very few people who do just a Peds Ortho fellowship and then want to be a pediatric hand surgeon. Um, but, uh, I think we're going to see more and more, um, sub-specialization, but, um, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want people to think, uh, that these days you kind of have to do two fellowships to get an academic job or something like that. I don't think that's true at all. I,
3: I agree with that. I, and when, uh, uh, my residents ask me about the, the two fellowship uh, concept, the first question I asked them is what do you, what do you want to do in that? uh subspecialty area. And as Jack said, there are a lot of times it what they what their career goals is something that you can accomplish with the right fellowship. Now if you want to do Uh, let's say you want to do spine deformity surgery, well, you need to pick a fellowship that's going to give you uh, the whole range of spine deformity surgery that you need to do. I do agree with Jack that hand is a separate area too. I think that if you're going to become a pediatric microsurgeon and explore the brachial plexus, generally, you're not going to get enough exposure to that in any of the straight pediatric fellowships.
1: Great. Um, Amy, this question is directed for you, but really... um well, it's really directed for the women on the panel. Um, it Maybe it's a little bit taboo to talk about, but I think it's something that a lot of the young um, female members of POSNA struggle with. Is there a right time to have kids during your career as a female um, pediatric orthopedic surgeon? Should there be a right, ter- right time? And um, what are your thoughts on maternity leave? And what's the right amount of time to take? And, and how does it impact or not impact your career? There's the uh,
6: right time I think it's kind of for you and your spouse um so for me I personally just felt like I had more control over my life and my schedule when I wasn't a resident and a fellow anymore I felt like I so I chose to wait till I was on staff and had passed my boards and that was my personal decision But then there's the kind of the devil's advocate saying, well, you're never going to have as much time as when you're a resident. You can take um, six weeks off kind of around your rotations and it's, you know, you can fit it in. And, And honestly, I tell people all the time. Whenever you think it's right and your partner and you both feel ready, that's the time to have children. <laughs> and when you're ready to bring a child into this world and and all the responsibilities that come along with it. And then maternity leave. Um, so I said at the end of my talk, um, my biggest mistake, because I was leading into Jack's talk, was when my second child was born, my daughter, I only took four weeks of maternity leave, which seems kind of awful. And my husband had just had a transphenoidal pituitary resection. So he had just kind of had brain surgery. So I left my infant daughter home with a man who just had brain surgery, <laughs> <laughs> which is horrible. Right. <laughs> but um, it worked it, out. Okay. <laughs> it did. And you've met my husband. He's, he's, yeah. he's solid. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, so what I said was, you know, if I had like worked on time management a little better and like maybe negotiated a little better, that probably didn't need to happen. But basically the reason that happened was because of the way the call schedule was and like people being away uh, doing mission trips. And I didn't want to leave Noel Larson on call Q1 <laughs> like while I was on maternity leave because there's just three of us splitting the call schedule. So really, I think that was more about us as a ped's subdivision working with the orthopedic department on call coverage, right? Like that, that could have been better taken care of. And so, I mean, my my husband was fine, and actually, he's like, when they're four weeks old, it's easy. You like feed them a bottle, you change your diaper, you know, they take a nap. So he said he was fine, but honestly, I wouldn't do that again. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure my body was like ready to like start doing spine again after four weeks. It was a little rough. And then I'm going to be brutally honest. You know, if you want to breastfeed, uh, going back to work four weeks after you've had a baby and then starting to knock out spine does not. Uh, create a good milk supply so you're gonna have to be ready to go to formula at that point if um if If because otherwise there's uh, nothing for the baby. (laughs) So those those are just things to think about. Those. I don't know that. So much to say. You just
2: (laughs) Just go (laughs) because I got some stuff to say.
6: And I'm Um, not sure, you know, a man mentor is going to talk to you about those things. But those are all really important things to new mothers. You know, like are you? And then here's another weird one. Where do you bring your be- breast pump when you're like rolling into the, <laughs> the OR? You know what I mean?
1: Like it's all very awkward. So, a female pediatric orthopedic surgeon.
6: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think all of those things, you know, come into the factors of when you decide to have children, but I honestly think there's no right or wrong time and it's just whatever works out best for you and your spouse, and whatever situation you're in, whether you're in practice or in training. And you can, it'll always work out. And no matter what, you're always the mom and that baby like just adores you because um, you're their mother.
5: Okay. I have Just a real quick comment. Um, I have one daughter and, um, and I also waited just like Amy, um, till I was, um, I had passed my boards um, to, to have our daughter. Um, and uh, we just set up like a huge community around her. So, um, so my parents um, moved to town and helped us out. Um, and after my dad retired, they bought a house permanently around the corner from us. Um, And, uh, and so we've, (laughs) she's got lots of people um, who are super interested in her and, um, and, and really help. Um, And then I also was a program director up until um, last year. And one of our um, fourth year residents had twins during residency and i was so proud of her and i was so proud of our um her classmates and um and the faculty because everybody just said you're a great resident um, we're gonna do whatever whatever you need. And she carried those two babies to term, and they were gorgeous and beautiful and healthy. And honestly, I felt like, oh, we all had a part in that because we helped, we really tried to help and make sure that that was okay. Um, because the really the message needs to be that 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 is a part of uh, whole being whole and um, fulfilled and a, and it adds to being a great, great right at your job. <laughs> and so, um, so I think we all really tried to play a good part in that. Too.
2: Um, so I love that, that, that brings a tear to my eye because I think that, um, as a, this is Siobhan again, as a kind of transition, uh, generation, uh, I could see the top. So Laura Tosi, um, who's was longtime chief at Washington, Washington DC, took seven days off and, and, uh, the woman ahead of me, who is a resident prior to my getting to uh, shock trauma, was asked what her plans were when they. she told them that they she was going to have a baby. As in, what are your plans in terms of terminating the pregnancy? So when I um, had, uh, j- I just decided to do it because I felt like I'd been married for a long time and it was a good time for us. But I quickly felt like I lost my golden girl status as a PGY-5. And uh, I went to, or PGY-4, and I went to my residency, my fellowship interviews pregnant. And some of them were like, have you put on some weight lately? And some people just bald face were like, are you pregnant? And Alan Crawford, bless his heart, was like, oh, good. You're pregnant now? That means you won't get pregnant when you're a fellow. So that would be great. So you will have different history uh, down the line with that. I think that probably the best time is to wait until you're done with residency uh, and done with fellowship and when you're in your first couple of years, you know, after you finish maybe those first couple of years as a um, attending, um, it's probably the best time. So I, I'm just really thrilled because I think that it, there's been multiple factors and multiple generations that have worked in making this more reasonable. Um, my, I had two more kids when I was a junior attending and took mm, six to 12 weeks on them. And I think that the support that you get from Michelle or from Dave or from Jack or from, from, any of these guys on this panel is so important in making the difference between it becoming a career, just a life event or a career ending event. So I'm very proud of,
1: of Postman's
2: contributions to that.
1: Thank you guys. Um, So we're just going to hit the lightning round real quick. A couple of rapid fire questions and everybody just um, say what comes to mind first when the question comes to you. So the first question is, what's the one book um, you would gift or recommend to a junior partner upon taking, uh, upon starting their practice? So uh, Dave, we'll start with you.
0: One of my favorite is A Contrarian's Guide to Leadership by Stephen Sample, who is a former USC president. Looks at leadership in a whole different light. Because it's really important. Even though as the junior surgeon, the first guy, you know, first day there, you are a leader of your team. And I think that many junior people don't think of themselves as leaders of their team. Jack, you're
1: next.
3: Hey, so this is Craig. It looks like Jack's having some technical difficulties, but uh, he says deep work, and also whatever book Michelle is holding up.
0: So I think that Jack was demonstrating there. The obstacle is the way by Ryan Holiday. <laughs>
5: Um, and this was given to me by Jack. Um, thank you. Um, and, um, and I, but I, I really do think that not to say that your first job is going to be super hard, but that there are really great things. There's always things to learn from, and there are always challenges
1: and that, that that's, um, uh, we can be better because of it. Siobhan, do you have any book recommendations? I would recommend two actually
2: um the art and practice of pediatric orthopedics by rang and wenger and also the Doctor's stories by william carlos williams a poet and doctor from patterson new jersey and uh i just find them very inspirational in terms of keeping at doing what we do and not saying i'm out of here Steve.
3: You're up next. Uh, I think I'm the outlier on this. I have shelves full of leadership books. And uh, the, the one Dave mentioned is uh, among the better ones. But uh, I get the most from um, reading about successful people. So biographies of people that have been successful. Because, uh, you know, leadership comes out in different uh, different forms and different circumstances. And so seeing how uh, successful people react to uh adversity and what has made them successful and try to uh, come to those conclusions yourself uh, I have found more helpful
1: Amy
6: So, um the book that i've been uh giving people is actually it's a it's a child's book But I think it helps a lot when you're in practice. It's called the boy the mole uh the fox and the horse and it's almost like a if you've seen it, it's like a meditation book. It, it just, I think being in practice in your first few years is really scary. And you always worry you're not enough. And you're always um, kind of comparing yourself to these amazing, you know, mentors and department chairs, and you just feel like you can never be good enough. And you, there's just a lot of um, anxiety. And I think this book, if you read it, To yourself or a child it it just it tells you that you're enough and what you do every day is good and to just kind of keep on moving forward and I think sometimes that's what you need in your first few years of practice and I'm kind of with Steve I like the leadership books but um this one was calming (laughs) to me in my first few years of practice
1: okay last question um Looking back, what was the best investment you made early in your career, whether it's time, money, or energy or something? It doesn't have to be, you know, it can be an intangible thing. And I I wanna thank Dan Miller for these um, rapid fire questions. He contributed them and I thought they were awesome. Dave, you wanna go first? Maybe we'll go in the same order.
0: I would say picking the right boss for my first job and having Vern Tolo as a mentor.
1: Okay, Jack?
4: He's still
3: having some audio issues, but he says prioritizing family.
1: Okay, that was a vote for family. Um, Steve, do you want to go?
3: Yes, I had to unmute there. Uh, I think it is uh, recognizing what uh, drives you and pursuing that. I don't think you can be successful at something unless you have a passion for it. So I think you have to really evaluate yourself, evaluate your strengths, and then uh, try to pursue it uh, vigorously.
1: Okay, Michelle? Um,
5: I'm just gonna go with something totally different. Um, We bought a house that is six minutes from the hospital, Mm -hmm. and that gave me hours of my life. Um, That was an extra, certainly extra papers, definitely extra exercise, um, and um, very importantly, extra time with my family.
0: And we should point out that everyone on the Zoom call is nodding their head at that one.
5: (laughs) Siobhan? Yeah, I would say um,
2: it's important to, I guess this is so corny, but marry the right person, a person. And I think that it's so important to be appreciative of the people who get you what you are. And uh, don't say, don't say I'm out of here. And Amy?
6: Last but not least. Yeah, I would, it's kind of the same thing. Like I said, in my talk, I think investing in your partners and, you know, working together to make each other as, as good as you can be helping each other clinically and also research wise and trying to like lift your partners up, you know, with you and so that you can all be a really successful team. And that's kind of my number two, like my number one was picking the right partner at home. And number two is picking the right partners at work. And I think if you have the right partners at work, truly, truly investing in them is going to lead to not only your success, but your entire practice's success. So I I try really, I try hard to do that.
1: I love that answer. That's great. I think that's all the questions that I have for everybody. Um, I really want to thank you guys for putting together your talks. They are just chocked full of wisdom. And I hope that um, everybody listening to this will, if they haven't already, will go uh, ahead and check that out on the virtual platform. And I appreciate you taking extra time to do a little bit extra for the Young Member Forum. I think, uh, I hope that we um, would have done Arabella proud um, with Everything that you guys have shared, and as a young member of PASNA myself, um, I've learned a lot during this uh, kind of Q and A session, and I think everybody else will too. And and again, thank you guys so much. You are all people that I look up to as uh, mentors and colleagues and friends, and I, I appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Thank you. Thank you, thank
0: you so much, guys. Thank you. Fun hanging uh, with everybody. Uh, yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you,
1: guys. Thank you. Love it. <laughs>